This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. Uh, we are kicking it local and socially distant and safe style for this episode of the podcast. Uh, I'm down in Loveland, Colorado, maybe 10 minutes away from my house, um, where we are blessed to have a local brewery here, uh, local to me at least, um, that is killing it in the barrel-aged beer game. And uh, Josh Grenz of Verboten, uh, Verboten Brewing and Barrel Project, is going to talk to us about barrel-aged beer today. Welcome to the podcast, Josh. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jamie. Good to see you. I try to, I've tried to space out all of my local friends, uh, you know, so that I, yeah. especially through this kind of COVID period, I can still go <laughs> see people face to face. And uh, it's fun to come down here and do this. For years and years, I actually used to work right down here on the corner of 4th Street uh, at uh, Interweave, a uh, handcraft publisher that used to be uh, oh, based down here cool. in the in the building that's now the, the co-working space down there. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, this was part of my daily uh, routine for a number of years before we started Unfiltered Media and Craft Beer and Brewing. And so, uh, yeah, here we are. Well, welcome back to Loveland. I, I, lo- I do love Loveland and uh, yeah, no, it's uh, anyway, you've, you've won quite a few medals for, uh, for barrel aged beers over the years. I think it was a bronze in 2016 at uh, great American beer festival, um, 2018 and 2020 gold medals in barrel aged barley wine at Fobob. You even won a uh, world beer cup medal for um, barrel aged mountain man. And so, uh, you know, with that kind of history and tradition of making fantastic and compelling barrel-aged beers, I thought, hey, you know, it's wintertime. People are thinking about big beers right now. And, uh, you know, let's talk about it on the podcast. Can't wait to dig into that with you. But first, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GND Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GND ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River and Kasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and a bunch more breweries you've heard here on this very podcast. All trust GND to chill the beer you love. Call GD Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, BSG is partnering with Leopold Brothers to bring a new line of small batch handmade malts to brewers and distillers. Leopold Brothers is a family-owned floor malting operation and distillery and 2020 James Beard Award finalist located just an hour, about an hour south of us here in Denver, Colorado. Since brothers Scott and Todd Leopold first opened their doors in 1999, they've created everything from classic unfiltered lagers to a number of spirits, including a wide array of whiskey styles. Learn more about the upcoming malt line by going online to bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact BSG at one 800 Three seven four two seven three nine. So, Josh, let's talk a little bit about your brewing history. Um, what uh, what were your steps along the your path to uh, getting here, where we are today, uh, launching and now operating Verboten uh, for a number of years? Well, I started out uh, like a lot, a lot of other brewers, uh, home brewing. It seems like a hundred years ago now. <laughs> at this point but um yeah i'm just messing around in the garage with with hops and malts and <laughs> seeing what i could make um i did that for a while and then got involved with the local homebrew club was treasurer of the club for a few years 
um, the wise guys here in Loveland. <laughs> the good old wise <laughs> yeah, guys. The, the wise guys. There was like eight to ten of us in the group when I joined. Um, the group's grown to like 40, 50 members now. Um, but yeah, it was just this, you know, bunch of people that loved beer, that was making beer, that would like to talk about beer and sit around and, and try stuff. But we kept it very educational, which I loved um, and helped a lot with that education early on in the club. And um, I had some great people that had, you know, kind of founded the club and started the club and was president, knew, knew a lot of stuff. And so I learned a lot of stuff about beer that I didn't know about making it because it was just kind of this fun little hobby and hey, now I have beer at the end. But, um, and, and I've always loved beer. I grew up born and raised in Fort Collins. Um, when I was 21, Odell, CB Potts, New Belgium, all pretty right. much were just brand new. Um, sorry, Cooper Smith, Cooper Smith. Right. And Odell, <laughs> Odell Brewing, and then New Belgium was like a year after that. And I just, you know, was just turning 21. And um, I, I was just getting into craft beer even then. Didn't have quite the money to, it seemed really expensive craft beer back then, which was odd. Um, because it was definitely worth the money. But um, so I, I, I just kind of had to pick and choose, honestly, you know, when you're 21 and you're broke, going to school. Sure. <laughs> But loved uh, Easy Street Wheat, Sunshine right. Wheat. Those those were my beers back then. And then started home brewing, you know, for the love of craft beer. Uh, I thought, wow, I can make make this at home. And so those were kind of actually a couple of the first styles I emulated. And we still make a, a, a wheat beer here on tap, an orange blossom honey wheat, which was basically when I was home brewing that was based off of Sunshine Wheat with an orange in it. And so I wanted the orange in it. I wanted some sweetness and, and that's our best selling beer here. So that, that's, that was a huge influence in my life, those guys. Um, but yeah, and then it just kind of evolved to the point where we just started talking about opening up a brewery, you know, can we make this a career? Can this happen? Um, and we, we, we started looking around in Fort Collins, um, cause that's where we lived, my wife and I, and, <clears throat> But I was involved with the homebrew club here in town. Uh, I just like the format a little bit better to be a little more involved. And I just saw a little more potential in Loveland. At that time, Grim Brothers was maybe a year old when we started looking. Right. First brewery in town in Loveland. Big Beaver, too. They were both about the same, same time. And it was just those two in Loveland, you know, a city of 70,000-plus people. And I thought, wow, what a what a potential that it had here and I, I had gotten good friends with them and in, in the community and the craft beer scene in Loveland specifically. Um, and so we started working, working on a plan, found a building, um, and then opened up early 2013. Um, and we chose for Boaten because we kind of just were messing around as, as a home brewer and, and the beers I like to drink and like to make had, you know, ingredients, the fifth ingredient, if you will, you know, spices, fruits, and uh, aging in spirit barrels was actually forbidden too um, under that kind of a sub-law to that as we did some research. And so we wanted that all to be a focus of like our brewing style. So yeah, it just kind of fits. to the Reinheitsgebot, yeah. uh, you know, kind of yeah. restriction on, on brewing process. Right, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so we wanted to, we kind of wanted to take take what, 
you know, the great breweries that were already open before us, you know, like I mentioned, New Belgium and, and Odell. And we really wanted to take that palette and expand it further. We weren't looking to convert, you know, macro drinkers to craft sure, beer. We sure. were looking to take craft brewers or craft drinkers, people that like craft beer already, and take that palette further right? and add some you know, additional ingredients and kind of just focus in on, on that. Um, and so that, that, you know, that was kind of our premise. We found a building across the street from, uh, a distillery, which was perfect because we could get barrels. And so we started in this little warehouse down there and, and, and now we're in this new location downtown, been here going on four years. I used to have a uh, physical therapy with Rodrigo a couple doors down yeah. from, from the old. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I used to come over and drink there. Yeah. yeah. I haven't seen him in a while, but. <laughs> and for the the mountain bikers who might be listening, push industries used to be like right around uh, on the other yep. side of the building from yep. you guys. I'm uh-huh. um, doing suspension tuning and whatnot. So yeah. it was a fun little location over right. there for right. sure. Yeah. Um, you know, but so you open up a brewery in Loveland and yes, you know, you're, you know, there's two or three breweries then at the time when you open up, but you're, in a pretty sophisticated craft beer market here in Colorado in the shadow of Fort Collins with like major heavyweights in the world of, of, uh, of craft brewing. And so carving out a space in, in this kind of highly competitive market, not to mention all the smaller craft breweries in Denver, you know, Boulder, um, you know, at Longmont air, you know, you've got a whole bunch of uh, yeah. uh, very significant brands that people are familiar with, you know, from left hand to Oscar blues, um, you know, Avery and, and more um, opening up a small craft brewery in that kind of market uh, is a bold undertaking. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. We, um, at that time we thought, boy, it seems pretty saturated <laughs> in, especially Fort Collins. <laughs> and that's kind of why another reason we were looking at Loveland, um, and that's why we wanted to try to be a little bit different. I mean, our, our original premise wasn't, wasn't to do classic beer styles and I love classic beer styles. Sure. Um, and we're brewing more of them now yeah. than we ever have, but, um, we, we wanted to add, you know, a, an ingredient to everything and just, just c- kind of set ourselves apart. And we, we started under this kind of nano ideas, a lot of them were starting to pop up. Um, Hess was one I looked at really close um, in San Diego that was kind of piping that nano brewery, really small size. And so you started a, on a tiny, tiny brew tiny, system. Yeah, three, a three-barrel system, which, um, you know, was about the biggest nano, I think. You know, right. most of some of these other breweries were in one and two-barrel systems. But I thought three, all right, I can get six kegs out of that. And we're just going to rotate those six six kegs and we'll, you know, everything will change all the time. Um, so we, we got to do a lot of that because of the small system. Of course, you know, as a business owner, you start looking at at um, the efficiency of six kegs and what it costs to make that. You're like, you start thinking about this... how many times a day yeah, you're brewing. Right. And like, and, um, huh. Yeah. Yeah. Was this the best thing to do? But um, it was because it got, it got, we got to play with a lot of stuff and never have anything around real long and see what people liked. 
uh, that we were making, and then 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 when those kind of turned, and you get to change variables things, so. so often. You know, yeah. you get to experiment, and the stakes of that experimentation are pretty low, right. and that you just sell six kegs of it, and then yeah. and then you're done. Right. I remember talking to the guys from Aslan on the podcast, and they were saying the same thing. They started on a two barrel nano, yeah. And even though, like, from a business perspective, it's just suicide, <laughs> like it's crazy, right? The fact that they were they brewed, you know, hundred plus times in their first year, I mean, more than that, you know, I mean, that's just a lot of brews to get under your belt and a lot of small variables that you can tweak every single time to learn about what you're doing and what people respond to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that, that was, that was good. Um, it wouldn't, wouldn't change that we did that. Um, but, uh, eventually you realize that, you know, that's, it's just kind of spinning your wheels a little bit and, and you're so inefficient <laughs> that sure. you, you got to try to got to try to make this in bigger batches. But it was uh, it was still fun. I still love those days. It was just me. Yeah. Brewing. And so you know, Verboden being that was your first professional brewing job then, right? Correct. Yeah. Right. And so you know, coming from home brewing to brewing professionally, you know, it's probably not the worst thing in the world to have that kind of runway to learn from at a small scale. Yeah. Exactly. I didn't want to have to jump in. I didn't know enough, honestly, about bigger systems, you know, three barrel, those two, three barrels are just larger homebrew systems. Right. Basically all manual still. So that, and if that God forbid you really mess develop. it up, yeah. then, you know, even yeah, dump, yeah. dumping a batch. Yeah. We isn't... had to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this didn't work out. Okay. It's going down a drain. That's this, okay. <laughs> still, still the, the stakes are low. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about how, you know, the time frame for getting into this brewery that we're in right now. But first, Tired of the trial and error carbonation processes? Then look at Quantiperm's innovative automated carbonation systems for precise carbonation. These systems handle wide flow ranges to accommodate all your beer, wine, soda, or cider styles. You can even carbonate and directly send the product to a packaging line without tankage. Besides carbonation, Quantiperm offers robust and economical systems for nitrogenation and water deoxygenation. All of their systems have an easy-to-use graphical user interface with reports and graphs that you can pull up on your mobile device. Visit quantaperm.com for more information. Also, ABS Commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. ABS wanted to do something fun for the craft brewer, craft beer industry, and uh, if you missed it, they gave away an ABS Keg Viking Keg Washer Live on December 7th. Congratulations to Lazy Horse Brewing and Winery in Nebraska for the new proud owners of a Keg Viking. Make sure you are on the list for future giveaways. Go to www.abs-commercial.com, click on the Keg Viking page, and fill out the contact form to stay in the know. So now you've got a new location that's right here in downtown uh, Loveland, Josh, uh, just off of the main 4th Street drag and uh, tap room, brewery, et cetera, barrel room, uh, much bigger brew system than yeah. uh, than you had back, uh, you know, back in the day at the original tap room. Talk to me about the, the formation of this location. Yeah, I mean, we we realized that in that little space, we couldn't grow. Um and on a three-barrel system, we were just killing ourselves to keep up. The response was really good, overwhelming, overwhelmingly good, and th- and that was a good thing. But problems to try to figure out, and um, so we just didn't have really the expansion area that we needed to in that old location. And um, 
And this is we, a much better consumer facing location. C- correct. Where yeah. There's correct. restaurants, there's places that people want to go right. and you know. Yeah. And the foot traffic and just to be in the heart. There's actually of, a couple other breweries down here too. Yeah. And so it actually becomes a, a location that people might want to go to in order to uh, hit a few different breweries, even in, in, you yeah. know, if they're doing a little bit of brewery hopping. Yeah. Yeah. There's four, one brew pub, two packaging, two other packaging breweries. Um, within walking distance from here, which is great. You know, we get a lot of foot traffic, people going back and forth. And um, that's what's great about the brewing communities. You, you know, you see a lot of the same people in the same tap rooms. You know, I can go over to Loveland Ale Works and see some of the customers, know them by first name that they come in here and to Crow Hop or Rock Coast and see see similar faces. And that's that's what we want, really. I mean, people getting out under normal circumstances this year has been a little <laughs> tricky with that right with, sure with covid but um yeah so we wanted to be you know kind of downtown in that scene and um find a building that kind of fit our personality better which this this just checked all the boxes for us and the ability to get a bigger brew house so. Sorry, I'm waxing nostalgic about Loveland in, in so many ways, but uh, you know, yeah. let's talk about let's talk about the real reason that people are listening to this podcast, um, and that's uh, to talk about your approach to, to barrel aged beers. Talk to me about the kind of genesis and foundation of uh, of this brewing program within Verboden. Yeah, I mean, we started in our original location. We wanted to do barrel aged beers. That's what um, we loved making. That's what we loved drinking. Um, and I was just blown away. I think the first time I had a couple of barrel aged stouts, bourbon barrel aged stouts, the first time I, I had one and it was Odell's, um, being in Fort Collins, you know, their bourbon barrel stout. And I was just blown away by the flavors and the complexity. Is that the one that later became infected that yeah. they recalled and everything yeah. else? Yeah. Yeah. And haven't made it since. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. A bad experience yeah, I know, for them. I know. But I love that beer. It just absolutely right. blew me away. Um, complexity and how much I couldn't get enough of it. <laughs> um, and at that ABV, I needed to not have as much as I had sure, of it at sure. the time, but I just, I just loved it. So I was just, I, it just was going to be a part of what we did. Um, it was just going to be. So we started out with a real small program, the distillery across the street um, was Dancing Pines. Um, and, and they've since um, closed that and sold to Family Jones, who has that building, a distillery out of Denver. Um, anyways, so we could get barrels uh, and kind of experiment. I mean, as a home brewer, I never had a 52-gallon bourbon barrel. As you know, I had some fives and some tens, which I was getting from Dancing Pines, too, because they had started off on these really small barrels as well. And <clears throat> so it kind of allowed us to just kind of experiment more with it. Um, and I... You know, I was I was kind of doing, you know, I, I didn't do a stout until uh, we moved into this building, which was four years ago. I never did an imperial stout. I was still working on the recipe and just dialing in the barrels. So we kind of took our time in in doing doing specifically an imperial stout. Um, and and that first year that was the GABF bronze. The first year we we did it. So. Um, so that, that kind of worked out for us, but we, you know, we were doing a lot of other just weird stuff. Um, you know, we were doing strong ales, not weird stuff, but just not stouts. And so it kind of allowed us to grow our barrel program. I mean, literally went from like six. Why, why not barrels. do stouts? I mean, now obviously within the world of stouts, there are, 
you're going to directly be compared when you do that to other barrel aged stouts and goose Island yeah. becoming that, like that for bourbon County being that, you know, uh, kind of primary point of comparison, you know, but then of course, Avery being here in Colorado and yeah. uncle Jacobs and those, you know, well-known barrel aged stouts that general consumers are really comfortable and, uh, familiar with. And so, you know, was that just an attempt to carve out some additional space and time for you to get it together before you had to go head to head? Yeah, exactly. I wanted, I wanted our first Imperial Stout that we packaged to be like a really good one. Uh, I wanted, a lot of pressure. I wanted to go head to head with those guys. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure in in Colorado, especially and and in that barrel aged world. And and I loved them so much that I wanted to make sure that I I nailed it. And and there were things I liked about certain ones, like, you know, the ones you mentioned, there was things I didn't like about, about those. And so, um, it kind of developed where, where we wanted it to be, you know, and mess with the barrels and times and what barrels that we liked for them. Um, and so, yeah, I just didn't want to rush into it and put something out that I wasn't super proud of if we were going to focus in sure, on sure. barrel aged beers and, and we didn't add it to our name and, the barrel project wasn't part of our name until we moved into this downtown location. So um, I thought that that timing was probably the best timing to actually try to do one. And I'd been kind of working on the base recipe and designing it specifically for the barrels. And um, I just wanted to, I just wanted to nail it right off the bat, I guess, you know, I just, yeah, I just didn't want to kind of just throw this beer in a barrel and hope it worked out. I, I wanted to put it into a barrel and, feel really good about the fact that it was going to work out after nine, 12 months in the barrel. You know, you say from tasting these beers, you know, these other beers that you had, you were able to formulate ideas about what you liked and what you might not have liked in these beers. Um, How would you describe what you wanted out of these beers and some of the flavors, and we don't need to name names, but mm. some of the flavors and components of beers that you found less attractive and the flavors and components of, of barrel aged, these barrel aged stouts that you found more attractive. It was uh, overly sweet, o- overly un- unattenuated, big barrel aged beers. I didn't want it to be that exactly. I wanted to just, come short of that i wanted it to be about as drinkable as you could imagine a barrel aged beer being as in you don't feel so so beat up by it and overwhelmed by it and overly sweetened by it and overly boozed out by drinking a 10 ounce glass of it which is usually what what you're going to get in a barrel aged beer at most most you know beer bars breweries about eight to ten ounces of it is what they're serving so I, I, that's where that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to enjoy the first sip as much as the last sip of that glass. Um, but I wanted it to be complex. I wanted it, to, you know, I wanted you to taste the barrel. I wanted you to taste the malt still. Um, and I wanted it to be sweet in an enjoyable way, but not, not chewy somewhere just short of that. That was just my approach to, to what I, what I liked best about the ones that I tasted um, and like I said, I just, I just wanted it to be drinkable all the way through it and not, not at the end of it. You, you, you want another one. Maybe you shouldn't have another one cause it's still high alcohol, but you want another one. Sure. You enjoyed it sure. that much. Um, 
that and you felt like you could have another one. So that that was kind of my approach to to doing the barrel aged beers, and I think that was the hardest with the stouts, of dialing that in a little bit so that so that it was those things. So it, it kind of hit all those marks. Let's talk about that a little bit, especially in the realm of stouts. So now you know you're dealing with a whole bunch of, of variables here. You've got high alcohol, which, you know, is alcohol heat. You need to balance that with sweetness. You need to balance that with, you know, malt depth and some of the car- caramel flavors and the kind of mid-tones there. You need to balance that with roastier flavors, you know, that hopefully don't get too sharp, you know. And so now, you know, as those roasty flavors get strong, you cr- ramp up a little bit of sweetness. The alcohol continues going, like, you know, these are all differing levers that you're, you know, you're pumping some up, you're pulling some down, you know, in order to kind of create this ultimate mix. Um, you know, for you, uh, what were some of the kind of key findings as you were playing with these ideas that helped you formulate the idea of of what makes this good? And then uh, we can go from there and talk about how that interacts with the barrel aging process. Yeah, it was uh, it was the base beer. I mean, it was starting with the base beer and the malt. Um, you know, there was there's some malts I really like for those styles. You know, specifically Golden Promise is just a base for for an imperial stout, and then um, a very complex grain bill. I think um, you know, the little nonsense was was the beer I'm talking about. The first one we did, and um, there was about ten different malts in it. Um, super complex. I mean, and, and I just learned with some, some beer styles, you know, keep it simple, stupid. That's sure, a good rule. Sure. You know, let, let, let those things shine. Don't do too much with the stouts. I found that, that, uh, you know, a little bit of a bunch of specialty grains, um, just made all the difference in the world to, to make that complex. I would say Corey, also, Corey King has always described that to me as it's a homebrewer's malt bill. Yeah, it's not a professional brewer's malt Correct. bill. You know, it's, there's yeah. no professional brewer that's going to throw ten specialty malts right. into a beer like this. Only a home brewer would do that. Right. Um. You know, but let's talk about some of the layers that you find through those various malts. What they might be, and what do you find that they, you know, specifically add to that process? You know, you start at Golden Promise as a base malt. Uh, where do you build from there? Yeah, just that Golden Promise, very robust. You know, a little a little malt character, um, honey ish sort of character, and then we're building towards a lot of chocolate. Um, not being overly roasty, but having having just the right amount of roast. Roast roast can go bad if it's too much. Um, it needs to be there, especially in a big barrel aged beer, but um, to kind of balance it out. So, kind of driving, you know, a lot of chocolate malts, and um, you know after tasting a ton of chocolate malts, you know, landed a lot on the Belgian uh, malts, chocolate malts um, from Belgium that are malted there. Um, and, and it's just kind of building it off of that into some caramel flavors. So some some crystal malts, dark, dark stuff, um, aromatics, malts, um, special bee, and and just building a, a big backbone of, of flavors like that, a touch of raisin from some of those like special bee, um, all those little touches, caramel, raisin, chocolate was probably the biggest flavor I wanted to come out in that um, balanced with a little bit of roastiness, that kind of honey, you know, robust base malt to it. 
um, and just building that complexity. Um, and these are generally in small single digit percentages, you yeah. know, low single digit percentages. Correct. Yeah. Except for the chocolate. That was the chocolate. We were up in double digits okay. on the chocolate. And then, and then also adding, you know, some more creaminess and smoothness, oats, flaked rye, stuff like that, that would build a little more creamy mouthfeel to it. Um, what kind of percentage are those bodybuilders in your stout grist? Those are, yeah, they, they're, they're in the teens as well. They're in the teens, um, especially the oats. Um, and, uh, yeah, so just kind of smoothing it out, and 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 what what we noticed about the stouts, the the base beer, it was never never very good without the barrel, huh. even even in a keg for a while, it just needed a lot of time, and we always um, kind of overly hopped, so it was on the bitter side for a long long time, and that just takes in the barrel, and then and then and once it hits that spot, it hits the spot. So. That was something else that we noticed about the beer, and maybe because it was because it was such a complex grain bill, and a complex process, and such a such a long process in just brewing the beer and long boils and stuff like that. How long do you was, boil for? Uh, we boil for six hours. Um, we did yeah. on little nonsense. It was three hours. Now we've we've we released a brand new stout this year, just to just to just to push our palates even further. Um, and release not a speck of light this year, and that's six hour boil on that one, roughly six hours on on that on that guy. So just to bring out some more, you know, melanoidin flavors, those those sweet malts and stuff, and and go a little bit bigger than Little Nonsense was, but yeah, just it, it just never is very good by itself without the barrel, and the barrel really is another ingredient. So we sure, were, we were sure. kind of, you know, it was overly chocolatey and kind of overly bitter for a long, long time, even in the barrels as we would taste it three months in and six months in. Right around nine months, would it would come into its prime between nine and 12 months um, was, was where we liked it. But it always take that long. And, and that's even more true of the barley wine. All that takes so, even longer to kind of yeah. get that sweet spot where you're just not like, oh, it's astringent and bitter and 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 not complex and then all of a sudden not all of a sudden but the difference between even three months sometimes can can make a big big difference now you know in a lot of ways you are building this base recipe for controlled oxidation Mm -hmm. you know in any kind of barrel environment oxygen ingress is a part of the aging process and a part of uh you know what gives these barrel aged beers their flavor are there some things that you tried earlier on that uh maybe that you ended up pulling out because you don't like the way that those uh those malt additions actually end up reflecting in the finished beer uh there there were a few and it had a lot to do with i think alcohol percentage and time um we learned that it, you know a lot of the time depends upon the alcohol percentage in the beer um some of the lower alcohol stuff that we were trying to do um you know, just, just our base oatmeal stout recipe, about 6%. Um, it was completely different. The time in there and the flavor of it just was much harder to, to get right, um, I feel. Uh, and so, yeah, there was there was some stuff that spent too much time in a barrel, too oxidized, or just too long and, and, and got, got weird. 
of course there was infections too sure, that he had sure. to dump um as well and and um so there was a lot of even just learning that you know what would work what would work in the barrel um and so we've kind of gotten away from anything very low alcohol pretty much everything we're doing now is double digit alcohol stuff in it and that's just just because that's it just seems to uh, like i said it's just a little bit easier to not control but it's just easier to design and develop i could see about you know three or four different factors you know impacting that number one looking at it from a straight sales perspective for the time involved consumers are willing to pay more for a higher abv beer um, whether that's a correct assumption or not, I mean, that's the way consumers do think about these kinds of things. And so, you know, that can generate more revenue for me from a standpoint, but then, you know, the other big piece of it is that alcohol is a you know chief driver of extraction. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when you're talking about something, you know, you know something, uh, a substance that will facilitate, you know, extracting barrel character for a beer, it's it naturally makes sense that you know ten more you know points in ABV are going to make a significant um, you know have a significant impact on the ability of that liquid to extract mm-hmm. any kind of character you know from the the vessel that it's in and so you can also you know understand like conceptually speaking why that higher ABV might drive that and of course that higher ABV necessitates a whole bunch yeah. of other creative choices that go along with it but uh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, we had to dump a lot of beers that were either, hey, we just have a little extra of this in a single barrel from the distillery next door. Let's just put it in a barrel and see what happens. And that rarely worked out. Yeah. And some other stuff that were, were similar to that where it was a beer that we didn't really design for the barrel. We did a big enough batch. Let's throw some of it into a couple of barrels and see what happens. And and they hardly ever worked out, and we ended up dumping a lot of those. So many of those that never really hit the market that were just a waste of of you know the barrel and a waste of the beer, and and just never came out very good. So we just had to take the approach of we're just designing these beers just to go into barrels, and nobody's ever really ever going to taste the base on them. Um, and, and and that's what seems to work out the best for us. That's uh, and we, there are a number of brewers we've talked in the past that have kind of struck that same chord that uh, you have to approach these with an intentionality. That yeah. good barrel aged beers mm-hmm. don't happen by accident, right. and they don't happen just because you tend to put a, a beer that you already like into a barrel. Right. It doesn't magically turn into a better beer yep. that yep. way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is interesting <laughs> to hear that you are, you know, you've built these beers that you don't like to drink by themselves, right? But that uh, you know through that process of barrel aging turn into something else. Yeah. Let's let's shift gears a little bit and talk. Well, actually, let's talk about uh, you know barley wine yeah, and yeah. the kind of strong ale and barley wine character, obviously, because uh, that's something we don't talk about very often often here in the podcast or in the magazine, um, but it is something you guys are good at. Uh, before we do that, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions are a great belated gift for that brewer you love, even if that brewer you love is yourself. Go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button, and join now. Also, on the pro-brewing side, we're excited to announce all-access subscriptions to our Brewing Industry Guide and brewingindustryguide.com. With new and exclusive content from writers like Stan Hieronymus, Kate Bernat, Ken Ben Keen, and our own staff, including me, of course. This all-access subscription gives you access to insight into ingredients, processes, 
equipment, trends, strategy, and more that'll help you run a more effective brewing business. With the All Access subscription, you can also purchase All Access beer reviews. If you're tired of entering contests but not getting useful feedback, this program guarantees that our blind panel will review your beer, score it, and provide you with notes. Learn more at brewingindustryguide.com slash subscription. So Barrel Aid Strong has now, of course, I should also, you know, admit that I'm most of the way through this uh, sample mm. of Grow Old With You, uh, mm-hmm. Cognac Barrel Aged uh, Grow Old With You, yeah. that uh, won a, a gold at Phobob. And so if I my comments get more and more colorful <laughs> as the podcast goes on, just yes. just understand why. Um, let's talk about the genesis of uh, of the barley wine mm-hmm. and uh, you know and how you then you're building that kind of of base for uh, for barrel aging. Yeah, I mean, we also waited on the barley wine. We didn't do the barley wine until after we had done our first stout, and um, it's for the same reason, you know. I, I love barley wines. They're a super complex beer that that takes a lot of time. And um, so we were doing Mountain Man was a strong ale, which is you know somewhere underneath the barley wine for sure. Not not quite as big and and as aged as a as a barley wine. So we you know had always had it kind of on the docket talking about making one and, and drinking a lot of them to see what we liked <laughs> which was the fun part really <laughs> and see what we liked again like take i will the same say approach. You know, for most brewers <laughs> when we talk about these things i count on most brewers drinking a pilsner or something light while we talk mm. and you are not doing that right now no, you are drinking a, a yeah you know and so <laughs> Clearly, the love of this style is, mm-hmm. is something, uh, you know, these bigger beers is is something that resonates with you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the barley wine right now is just, it's just hitting the spot. And uh, my wife keeps telling me I need to save some for the customers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, because, yeah, I just do, do love them so much. I mean, if it was a little bit later in the day, I'd probably be drinking. I'm going to drink a barley wine after this, but... <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it's, 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 I just, I do love the styles. Um, there's not too many beer styles I don't like, to be honest with you though. I mean, there's yeah. some I prefer and I, the ones I really prefer are the, are the bigger yeah. styles. And, and like I said, the, the barrel age stuff, um, sure. it seems so and, special. You know, and I know plenty them. of brewers that make those beers, mm-hmm. but more often than not, even the brewers that make those beers, they don't. That's not the beer of theirs that they will drink most often, mm-hmm. or that they would even choose as a go-to beer. Um, and so I appreciate yeah. that uh, you know that's that's something that you might uh, want to drink while we're talking about them. Yeah, yeah, I, I I'm the weird one, I guess. I mean, I like I love pilsners, but if I'm going to sit and chat and talk about these styles, I especially want to have one in my hand. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so, so let's talk then about this, this barley wine and building. Yeah. What is, uh, what is the kind of, you know, base and grist of those, that beer look like? Less complex than, than the stouts for sure that we're doing in barrels. But, um, I mean, we wanted to, you know, focus in on English style barley wines. That's what we liked better. Um, and so we're using English malt in it. Uh, Maris Otter, um, but not 100% of the base is Maris Otter. It's mixed uh, about 50-50 with American Pale and Maris Otter. Um, just to balance out, Maris Otter to me can sometimes be a little overwhelming, a little too powerful. Um, and so I, I like a 50-50 mix of that. And so that's basically the base and then dark, dark crystal, 
you know, special B in there. And then we use Belgian candy sugar as well in a dark Belgian candy syrup in the beer to bring out that raisin, um, which makes it really, really weird for a long time. We, it's very hoppy. It's very bitter. It's, you would think it was an American barley wine if you drank the base beer. And it takes that long. It takes a year to not be an American barley wine anymore. So we're we're we're, we're interesting. What kind it. of hops are you using in the in the recipe? We just uh, Columbus. I mean, high alpha acid. Yeah. Right now, I mean, whatever high alpha acid hop we have. And what's your target IBU for it? It's sixty in the high sixties, about sixty-eight, almost seventy, off the top of my head. Yeah, it's. It's almost 70 IBUs and it's, yeah. And it's just very bitter for a long time. Where do you, uh, where do you add those along the way? Or the, I mean, just, imagine... just in the boil, 60 minutes yeah. into the boil. I said, this is all I figure if that's the case, then you're not caring about the nuance of when you add them very much. Yeah, no, we just want, we just want it to be bitter, um, because it's going to smooth out eventually. Uh, I think as it condenses, especially in, you know, Colorado, such a dry climate here that we're losing so much water from them in the, in the, in the the barrels, especially during winter here, it's just really dry. So we're losing a lot of water and it's condensing, it's condensing, it's picking up sweetness from the barrel. Um, And so it'll come into where that sweetness is. I mean, this beer goes into the barrel around 11%. And it comes out, this came out at 14.2 this year. Oh, wow. So we gained a lot of um, alcohol on this beer in the year that it's in there. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's again, it's not something that's good by itself. I mean, we, ha- we have kept some of the base beer around. Like, we try to do that. And in stainless, this beer, you know, six to nine months starts to get there in stainless. But it's still still overly bitter and, and the candy sugar it comes across a little vegetal almost it's just a weird base beer that we we would have a hard time doing anything with it again just designing it for all that time in the in the barrel that it needs um and it really takes that long i mean it's like nine months in and it's almost there but it's still a little overly bitter and astringent and if we don't just give it that extra couple of months um, it's just not going to be where it is. You keep using the word raisin and of course referencing mm-hmm. special B around that. What I find interesting about it is that I don't taste it as yeah. a primary kind of note. Right. Um, it's sitting back in the background somewhere. It's still there, but it hasn't gone down that road, which I think everyone who you know drinks these beers is pretty familiar with that kind of dark fruit dark cherry raisin, mm-hmm. you know, kind of character that, uh, that these beers can certainly develop as they oxidize. Um, you know, or do you think that's really just a function of that higher hopping rate and the kind of, you know, bitterness that helps offset some of that character? Yeah. Yeah. And being delicate with, with that, with, with those malts to make it raisiny and, and, and not going too long on the time. Um, and getting it to dry out too again. I mean, as, as you drink that, you know, I wanted it to be very classic and not not overly sweet again on it. So uh, I was going for a very classic approach on a barley wine that would be attenuated out enough, um, but still still have a strong malt backbone 
um, and be high alcohol and have all those things, again, without just wrecking your palate. That's what we go for in these kind of beers, without something that just kind of overwhelms you, not wrecking your palate, but overwhelms you with one glass being, man, that was really delicious, but ooh, it was sweet. Or this was really good, but it's bitter. Um, so yeah, I mean, just finding all those nuances in there is 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 the fun part, been the really sure, fun part with sure. these with these st- style of beers and getting that right sherry oxidation note in there too. And and it's not always a set amount of months either. It's anywhere in between nine to, you know, 13, 14 months. We found that, that it comes into its own and needs all those things and it needs that amount of time, but it's not always 12 months. It's not always nine months or whatever. Yeah. It's usually... Somewhere in between there that that we kind of have we have a target date for releasing this sure sure um, always but sometimes we have to pull these and and keg them early get them cold um, because we don't want it to over oxidize as well and get really raisiny and too umami. I want to come back and talk about blending process uh, you know later on but um, but I notice we haven't really talked about fermentation certainly with um, you know high ABV beers like this you know, going in at 11, you know, you're fermenting this, um, you know, in a very specific way. And there are fermentation characteristics that can come from that that can also affect how that aging process, uh, you know, uh, transpires, you know, from your perspective, like what is, what does that fermentation process of these beers look like before they go into barrels? We ferment pretty cool for an ale in the low sixties, um, trying to hold those esters and they're so active that, um, you know, we, we don't want we don't want a lot of uh, overly uh, you know phenols and, and and esters. We want it to be a really clean profile. We're just using our house uh, yeast strain here on it. Um, Is that like Cali ale or something or Scottish? Scottish. Okay. Yeah, we use Scottish ale. Um, just because I like I like the Scottish ale. It does really well. It's not the perfect strain, but it works a lot of good. We do a lot of stouts. It's really great for stouts, and it's okay for. Uh, other styles too, but we we mix in other strains too to to do those styles. But our main house strain is a Scottish, and that's what this and our stout as well. And it's a powerhouse. Surprisingly, um, we do use Alphamales in the barley wine, so that it does attenuate out pretty good. We use that in the mash, um, and we mash it low, uh, 147 degrees um, to mash it low, super long rest. Um, super long boil again, but we use the the enzyme to so that it's more uh, attenuates out pretty good and it's not overly sweet, and we ferment it cool and it stays in stainless for until it's at terminal and we crash it uh, and we leave it in the tank for about two weeks. Um, we let it warm up a little bit before we put it in the barrels, just so we don't have a lot of um, off gassing and expansion in the barrels. Um, but we don't add biofine or anything. We just cold crash, give it a nice long conditioning in the basically a t- two week lagering period before we put it in the barrels. So it's nice and clear, um, just naturally on it. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's it. I mean, it's in, you know, it's in a tank for about six, seven weeks, probably before we put it into barrels Yeah, altogether. Um, just uh yeah and that that seems to work for us so i mean it's a lot of tank time but with the alpha amylase is that 
you know, is that something that you've done from the start or something that you started doing in order to help the yeast along to get to where you wanted it to go in terms of, uh, of ultimate dryness? Um, was that a process improvement or was that part of the initial plan? That was part of the initial plan for the, for the barley wine. Have you ever tried it without it? Have not in the barley wine. Okay. No, that was our initial plan in the barley wine. And we had to do some collaborations uh, here and there that um, where the enzyme was being used for me to kind of see what it did in other people's brew houses and situations. And, and it, it, I mean, that's why Amelaise was kind of around as, as a brewer's little tool to help those big beers and you know, stouts too. I don't use it in our stout uh, that and light lagers. I mean, it was really there yeah. for high gravity brews of light lagers. Yeah, to, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, we we we've used it from the start um, on it. Had yeah. great, great results with it. I mean, that was the that was always the trick that Avery yeah. used for their like sixteen right. and seventeen percent beers, mm-hmm. right? They then they call it the like uh, the Schwartz or liquid Schwartz or something. Yeah, like that. Like, yeah, liquid Schwartz. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, on the Demon series, right? Yeah. There's now, some, and now really the secret's ones, yeah. out. Now everybody does it. And then, yeah. then the brewed IPA thing happened, yeah. and all of a sudden IPA claimed uh, amylase yeah. uh, enzymes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it works. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah, we we did it initially with it with that as part of the design, so it would it would attenuate out and not be overly cloying. How how big of a, a portion or a part of the the barrel aging process for you is is the blending process? Um, you know, it sounds to me. I mean, you're still a small kind of program, yeah, right? And it's not like you're stacking back hundreds or thousands of barrels and then you know choosing the the top fifty to make a blend from. You know, the scale you're working at is a whole lot smaller than that. Um, how much does blending you know play a part in uh, in the beers that you release? Somewhat, but yeah, as a small brewery, I mean, you know, we get get the barley wine in about eight different barrels. Uh, I try to mix the barrels, um, and, you know, it's, I try to consistently get the same barrels. That's not always possible to get the same barrels as we used the year before. Um, uh, and then I try to keep, if we're doing, you know, it depends on variations. This year we did two variations of it. I had Law's whiskey barrel, Law's bourbon barrels, and I had Heaven Hill rye barrels. And so I did blend uh, all the, all the, all of the Heaven Hill rye barrels. Fortunately, we're all clean past micro. All of our barrels for the barley wine were clean and past micro and taste panel this year. Um, and so being a small brewery, we just used all of sure, you know, this sure. that we had six uh, rye barrels. I used five of those. Um, then I moved on to cognac staves, and then the other version we did was the Laws bourbon barrels. Two of those mixed with one of the Heaven Hill rye barrels um, for kind of a double oak. Both of them were a double oak theme. Two different barrels. So that's kind of, uh, you know, being small, the way that we kind of have to approach it um, is just kind of group those barrels together. I mean, sometimes there's, you know, some blending if, if a barrel isn't very good. Surprisingly, that barrel just helps the blend sometimes. You get good barrels and you get some barrels that are just kind of blah, wouldn't be good by themselves. Right. But when you blend them, it just adds like another layer of complexity. It had some sort of flavor in it that the other ones didn't, the ones that you really liked. So um, it's kind of just worked out that way for, for blending them. We we want to use all of the barrels 
Um, it's because we don't have a lot. We don't have the, necessarily the luxury of leaving these ones behind. Um, we'll do that sometimes to do like a brewer's reserve and age, age something a few more months and release it. I have that actually with the barley wine. I've got three more barrels in the barrel room right now that are going to be for special projects. One, our anniversary beer that's moved into a port barrel now. And then two other ones, one that's a spoken collab with a brewery uh, here in Colorado. And the other one, we'll do some sort of, you know, brewer's reserve on it, let it go a few more months, you know, checking that oxidation, of course. And when it hits, you know, kind of a special spot, we'll pull that as well. So, um, but most of the time, yeah, we just want to use them all. I mean, we just want to try to sure. get as best sure. yield as we can in them. And as long as they're, they're clean, barrels and taste good um we'll we'll blend them upon that uh do you ever vary base beers based on uh on what the end product barrel is going to be for it i tweak the recipe a little bit actually every year um because i i I have a pretty good i usually kind of secure the barrels first and we've been pretty fortunate like we got laws barrels again couldn't get heaven hill rye this year so it's going to be all laws bourbon barrels in the, in the barley wine. Um, uh, and, uh, so uh, I tweak the recipe a little bit every year just because, you know, I, I don't just, that's just the way kind of the brewer I am, you know, sure. I, I just trying to add just one more little thing to it that I think I would have liked in it. Um, and a little bit, yes, because, you know, last year, the barley wine was in mostly rye barrels, rye whiskey barrels. And this year it's going to be in all bourbon barrels. So um, I tweaked the recipe based on that a little bit too, because you're going to get, you know, a lot more vanillin out of it. Um, they're generally boozier because uh, of bourbon and the nature of bourbon. Um, and these specific barrels, I know, um, you know, what alcohol percentage their bourbon is before they pull them out. Um, so, so I do kind of tweak it for that a little bit. So I, I try my best. We try our best to, to know what barrels are going to go into so that I can kind of adjust what that recipe might bit might end up being. You mentioned, uh, you know, that this year the cognac variant is aged on cognac staves after being aged in, in bourbon barrel. Um, talk to me about that aging on staves process and what that looks like for you. Yeah, that's, uh, we looked at actually getting cognac barrels, um, but honestly, they're hard to find. They're super expensive. <laughs> um, and it, we did that on the very first time that we thought about doing a cognac version. Um, and then we actually found, found, and anyone can find these, they're available for homebrewers, they're actually um, chipped up cognac. They're actually real cognac barrels that have been chipped up and then sealed nitrogen, basically a pasteurized, if you will, with nitrogen, um, sanitized with nitrogen is what they say. So they're good to go right out of the bag. We haven't had any problems with them. So that's, that's where we went. And, and, um, with that, um, and that was just, like I said, logistics thing, cost thing. Um, and that's worked out really good, a little more controllability of the cognac aspect to it. Um, we haven't done the beer just on cognac or in just cognac barrels. It's always been a double, double. We've aged it in either bourbon or rye barrels and then um, moved it into stainless steel um, for a couple of weeks on the, the cognac staves. 
the chips, if you will, the shredded cognac staves. How do you, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, amounts and mix in order to get something that's perceptible, um, you know, how many, how much volume of cognac chips does it take per barrel of beer? We follow the, we, we first started with just following the recommendations from, from the manufacturer where you can get those. Um, and I believe it was like four ounces per barrel, I believe on their recommendation. So, um, we started with that. That was actually the first year that we did it where we were doing different amounts and then we're reblending all of those. Um, this year we kind of know where we like and kind of hit that sweet spot and how much time that we need on it. And, you know, we, we were messing around with, um, different amounts and different kids. Literally the first year that we did this beer, we, we had like eight different kegs with different amounts. And then we had to reblend all those. You're doing yeah, all this we, blending in we, kegs. We did it. Uh, the first year we did it. Um, we Ouch. just wanted to, yeah, we just, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was really stupid <laughs> to well, do it that way. You gotta learn but somewhere, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what we kind of wanted to do. We really wanted to see the different amounts and what we liked and hit that spot so that we would know. So it was really difficult the first year. It was a lot of tasting <laughs> those, those kegs like every couple of days, which was fun. But, um, so, so now we kind of know where we like and how much time, but that first year was just all experimenting with literally, it was like eight different kegs with different amounts of those, those chipped up cognac barrels in it. Um, this year was much easier because we know the amounts took good notes and we did it. The time was pretty, pretty, pretty close to about where we were expecting. What's that, what's that, it, so. you know, thereabouts look like? About just about two weeks. Okay. On those is all we want additionally. And four ounces those. per barrel still, or it's um no we end up using just a little bit over that. It's, okay. So uh, closer to five ounces oh. per barrel for right. just under two weeks. Just tasting it in the tank, seeing where it is. Um, you know, kind of. Are you doing that under pressure, or you do, or you know, is there a certain you know? Uh, I know that there are certain folks that are trying to do like um sped up you know wood extraction kind of process mm -hmm. you know by loading barrel staves mm -hmm. and then putting everything under a pretty intense you know head pressure um you know to speed up that kind of extraction process if you were doing it in kegs i mean I, there's a limit to how much head pressure you could even have on that right um you know what is it just a general normal tank fermentation pressure or uh yeah just just normal tank pressure i mean 15 psi yeah. on our um on our bright tank um not even in our bright tank we actually have a an extra tank because that's too long in a bright tank to sit there so we have some seven barrel fermenters back there that uh, we were using for the two different blends yeah. of of the the rye bourbon version and then the cognac version so um just under normal head pressure um we circulated it though um, so that we would get good extraction on it. So we did circulate the tank to do just that. with tank, you know, through itself. Just through then. pump, yeah. Okay. Just just pump it, you know, purging everything. I'm not a huge. So fan those of chips are in the tank itself, not an external vessel that you're pumping through. Correct. Yeah, in okay. the tank, in the tank itself. Yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll put them in in large muslin bags into the tank, and then 
circulate the tank. After a few days, we'll circulate the tank, taste it again. But yeah, only keeping it under 15, you know, PSI head pressure. Um, it's just longer fermenting. Why circulate instead of just rousing the tank or something along those lines? Just get a better mix that way. Yeah. We used to rouse, but I mean, anytime you rouse with like CO2, you're kind of beating, you can't beat it up if you're not careful. You can hurt head retention. These beers don't have great head retention anyways. I mean, right. high alcohol and barrel age, they don't anyways. But um, so that's just not a practice we do a lot of if we feel we need to do it a lot. I mean, to burp it something, you know, once if we want to mix it, we'll do that. But on these beers, we tend to circulate them just to get a better a better mix, a better extraction um, on it without kind of beating up the beating up the beer and affecting head retention any worse through this process um you know of brewing barrel aged barley wines um what would you say the most important thing the single most important thing that you've learned about making it uh you know hitting the kind of golden mean that you're looking for um what you know in terms of other brewers trying to accomplish this in their own brewing um, what would you say the single most important factor is for them to pay attention to? Patience, really patience in recipe development, patience in fermentation, patience in conditioning, patience in the barrel. Um, all, all, I mean, patience all the way across the board really um, is the number one thing. I mean, every single step is long with these beers for for beer, I mean, you know, you can turn beers around in two weeks, grain of glass, you know, if you're talking to Blondale or something, but you're talking to beer that you're looking at a year from now, I'm going to drink you. Um, so it's, it's patience, but it's not just patience in the barrel. It's just, I mean, it's patience at every step of the, of the process of it from recipe formulation to fermentation to, to the final product to, to releasing it and doing everything slow. Don't rush the aging process, don't rush the conditioning, don't rush any, any part of it. Um, and that, that, that can be hard because you have a target date when you don't want to release it. Right. And we always have a target date too. There's a season for the release of these things and it's, you know, it's not an endless season. Can't release one of these in the middle of the summer. I mean, you could, but generally speaking, it's not a great time to release this kind of thing. uh -uh. (laughs) No. So yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly right. So, it takes a lot of planning ahead. You got to plan ahead and just just have patience with it. And, and it seems to me there's a fair amount of learning that goes, you know, especially that you know, given these beers are so um, impacted by their immediate environment, that what works for an aging process with the barrels that you're using in this kind of dry environment may not produce the same beer for somebody in a much more human environment. Mm-hmm. Um, that aging process may be faster or slower. You know, it, uh, the, yeah, the temperature of your barrel aging room. Well, I mean, there's so many things right. you said is going to affect it. So, um, you know, you're just going to have to decide where you want it to be and wait until it's there. But that's, yeah, exactly. Like you said, that's going to yeah. be a, a lot of factors in each brewery is going to be different. Let's zoom out a bit. You know, obviously these are, uh, you know, this, these barrel aged barley wines and stouts or beers that are putting verboten on a broader, uh, you know, that kind of national map. Um, how much, how important are these beers in the, in the next couple of years 
for for Bowdoin as a brewery. Yeah, I mean they're they're always going to be a part of what we do, always a part of what we love. Um, yeah, I mean, and that's probably our highest demand, you know, styles that we have that people ask for. I mean, the ones that we get high demand for, and and you know the the that people are trading of ours. Um, but you know where the market goes is is they're always going to be a niche drinker for these styles yeah. right? because they're high alcohol and 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 because of the nature of the beer and um you know whether that's going to go go up or down um i I would just say that we've kind of simplified our program and focusing in we were doing so many i mean 2019 we released a barrel aged beer every month in a package in a bottle wow which was really overly aggressive and we 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 did it we made it um you know made a few mistakes along the way as in didn't get to release it on time, had to wait, uh, you know, and we had to move some stuff around and shuffle. Anyways, now we're just focusing in on, you know, about three, three base beers. And then we can yeah. do some variations off of that, you know, the variants off the stout and the, you know, the variants even off the barley wine with different oak and different or different wood products and stuff like that, different barrels. But we're just focusing in on, on those, those three. So we're just kind of simplifying it a bit um and and that might be where you know the demand for these beers are going to be where maybe certain times a year people want to drink them and we were releasing barrel aged beers in july and august (laughs) now looking back didn't make a lot of sense really (laughs) sure sure but there is you know a nice beautiful now you know barrel aged bourbon barrel aged beers are not necessarily classic in any sense they're definitely a modern invention but there's still something that feels beautiful and timeless about these beers especially the way that you present them um in a mostly non-adjuncted or in a very limited and conservatively adjunct kind of way which seems um you know directly you know, as direct counterpoint to some of the more indulgent, um, adjuncted approaches that uh, mm-hmm. some brewers are taking today. Um, you know, naturally, you know, as as brewers and uh, you know, as, as folks that tend to love that classic ideal of balance, you know, there's there's something beautiful about it. Is um, you know, from a commercial standpoint, what does that mean for you? You know, there seems to be a bit of sticking to your guns on this. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, how have you noticed in terms of sales, is that helping? Is that hurting? Um, is that just what it is? Um, you know, what, uh, you know, is there a philosophical background to doing it that way versus doing it another way? Obviously we've, we've heard about your philosophy, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's the brewing philosophy and then there's the business philosophy and, right. uh, um, balancing those two can, can be a challenge sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is a challenge. Um, we do that for sure. I mean, we adjunct a lot of stuff. I mean, that was the whole verboten thing was to add ingredients to beers and do that. But I mean, our, our approach has always been to, uh, that, that, that adjunct highlights the beer, um, that, that adjunct isn't the, it's obviously uh, a flavor that's there. But, you know, we still wanted it to to be a beer um, was our approach to it. But we, 
you know, we, we've adjusted that a little bit. I mean, sure. that's, that was our approach at the, f- at when we first started like that, that fifth, that forbidden ingredient, that verboten ingredient, with the spice of fruit, adjunct, chocolate, vanilla, whatever it was going to be, was going to be, um, a note that was there, but wasn't overwhelming and punch you in the face. And, and we have had to change that a little bit. We're going a little heavier handed on, on that for sure, because that's just what the consumer wants. Um, and I don't have anything against doing it that way. Like I like the adjuncts. That's why we went sure, that route sure. with what we're doing. Um, so we've changed our philosophy yeah. on that a little bit, going a little bit heavier, but, um, you know, I still, I still want, I mean, we did a German chocolate version of not a speck of light this year. That was heavily adjuncted. Um, but the vanilla, you know, our, our approach was, yeah, just like you said, to just the, the, the vanilla's there, but it's not just like a punch you in the face. Vanilla gets weird to me if you if there's too much in it. So, um, and I think that that's true of a lot of adjuncts. So at some point, I I want it to be there. The consumer is driving that. If you sit down and it says a peanut butter, or whatever, it's got to taste. They got it. They better taste a lot of peanut butter. I mean, that's just the way it is. So we've we've adjusted that a little bit, going a little heavier hander handed on on our adjuncts because the consumer expects it to be there. Um, and I'm fine with that. I I mean, I I don't have any problem with any brewer that is doing that because that was our whole approach to brewing to begin with. But uh, I would say that with the barley wine, we're a little more like we haven't done anything other than just wood on it. The the, the barley wine is, is something I think we'll probably adjunct at some point, but I don't know that, that like the, you know, that style just has like such a, it's so nostalgic for me that I, in my brain, I struggle with adding chocolate or vanilla or coconut to a barley wine. I just want the wood and the flavor of the beer. But I know for sure probably next year we're going to be doing something uh, with the barley wine because now we've done, you know, it's like our fourth year of that barley wine and we've done rum and we've done cognac and we've now I've got port and we've done brandy and, and kind of running out of of uh barrels to to try to to try to do so we'll we'll probably do something like that but um i mean the stouts yeah i mean the stouts go good so good with vanilla and and all that but i still like to taste the barrel i mean i've i i I want the adjunct to be there but i still want people to taste the barrel and the base beer too but um, like I said, the consumer wants to taste that coconut or vanilla or peanut butter in it. So it better be pretty obvious it's in there. Well, you know, of the beers that we've tasted, uh, you know, as of late, um, we've found even what you know, whether it's our blind review panel or whether it's our own judging process that, um, sweetness or intensity in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing, but achieving that balance with that intensity is the important character. You know, for beers like Toppling Goliath, I think are fantastic at that. The beers mm. these days are pretty sweet, you know, mm-hmm. but that sweetness is balanced by a heftier roast component um, and definitely that alcohol component and these other kind of mid-tone, you know, caramel richness, you know, uh, elements that help the whole work as a whole. And I think that there's kind of a beautiful intersection of, of bitterness, caramel sweetness, you know, a little bit of roast, um, and a little bit of that alcohol heat. Uh, you know, in your beers, adjuncted or not, that uh, that kind of achieve that kind of 
idea of balance and uh right. you know if there's any hope for the world then there will be yeah. <laughs> more uh consumers that come to appreciate that yeah again in a in a broad picture what uh what does success look like for you and verboden for you uh the business as a whole um what's the end goal for verboden what do you hope to achieve here just uh to keep to keep making beer that people enjoy i mean you know we're doing something that we love you know right, right doesn't feel like work if if it's something you really love, um, and, and that's that's the goal, you know. Obviously, it's a business that we own, and there's the business aspect of it, and those business decisions um, that have to guide you along the way. But you know, at the end of the day, we make beer, and um, we just want to keep making beer for people, and and hope that they enjoy it as much as we do. Um, you know, to be able to share that with other people in your community and be a part of the community and um you know that's that's what we love about it um and we just want to keep that going I mean, we're not looking to you know distribute across the country at verboten um you know we're we're kind of coming into our niche after eight years <laughs> it seems <laughs> like we finally hit our groove because <laughs> because you know i mean the scene changes so often um things change and your approach changes and and the consumer the consumer's palate changes and and so you just have to you just have to kind of roll with that and and you know i tell brewers this all the time they complain about certain beer styles and the way that they're done um you know the the day that i opened up for Bowton, it was the last day i was making beer for me and my buddies and now i make it for people in the tap room and i want to have a variety that people like and um if that if they don't like something that's fine that's fine. I mean, I don't, I don't expect everyone to like every beer we make. And we do some weird stuff here sometimes. And so, um, but I know that whoever comes in can find something that they like. And so that's, that's what I want to keep going. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, we're just trying to do, do our best to, to keep our niche going and keep our groove going and um, kind of stay true to ourselves at the same time while being very flexible sounds good GD chillers is the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs try small batch leopold brothers malts from bsg quantiperms innovative systems offer precise carbonation sign up now to stay in the know for future abs commercial giveaways and subscribe now to craft beer and brewing and the brewing industry guide to support this very podcast josh if people want to learn more about verboten brewing and barrel project uh, where do they find you all in real life and on the interwebs real life we're uh downtown loveland like you mentioned earlier um our tap room is um you can find our beer across colorado um we are our, our distributor and uh, in, in colorado as well um you can find out more information about us at www.verbotenbrewing.com and of course you can follow us on facebook and other social media like instagram sure well, thanks for talking with me about uh, yeah. brewing barrel-aged beers. I, uh, My pleasure. I appreciate it. Cheers, Josh. Thanks. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.